0: Good evening <coughs> good evening, everyone. My name is David Elwood and welcome to a actually remarkable evening here at uh, the John F. Kennedy Junior Forum at the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, you were preceded by an event that included General McChrystal and Mayor uh, an- Anise Parker from Houston that was talking about veterans and honoring all the veterans that are members of the student body here at Harvard uh, as well as uh, uh, people who have served and are no longer at Harvard. Um, tonight uh, In our second forum, we have an equally remarkable evening ahead, um, since we have uh, Eric Kanter, who is the Majority Leader of the House of Representatives, as all of you know. Um, welcome back. We're thrilled to have you back here, and my job is now to simply introduce the introducer. Um, this is Harvard after all. Um, <laughs> but we are very proud that, that uh, uh, Congressman Kantor can join us. So. Um, Our director of the Institute of Politics, Trey Grayson, is with us tonight. And Trey was a two-term Kentucky Secretary of State and was elected to uh, statewide office in November 2003 as the youngest uh, Secretary of State in the country. Um, in 2007, he became one of only two Republican statewide constituency, uh, constitutional officers to win a second consecutive term in modern history. Tough place. Um, after taking office, Trey was quickly recognized as a real leader in, uh, in terms of elections, uh, c- uh, civics, business services, and uh, government innovation. He modernized the office of Secretary of State by bringing more services online, enhancing Kentucky's election laws through several legislative packages and reviving civic missions of schools in Kentucky by leading the classroom effort to restore civics education. But now he is here leading those same public service in a different form since he is our uh, director of the Institute of Politics and leads this remarkable set of activities including tonight's forum.
1: Thanks, David. Thanks, Dean Nowood, and he's absolutely right. This is a pretty extraordinary evening here at Harvard Kennedy School. I want to welcome all of you to the John F. Kennedy Jr. Forum uh, to listen to Leader Cantor. Uh, Representative Eric Cantor was first elected to the United States Congress in 2000 uh, and quickly became uh, elected. He was elected to leadership at the end of his first term, becoming deputy whip. We like to take credit for that because, you see, he attended the new members of Congress conference that Harvard hosts every two years and he obviously was one of our star pupils at that orientation after his 2000 election. So After one term he went into leadership as deputy whip uh, and then became the whip and ultimately became the Republican leader uh, when Republicans took back over the Congress after the 2010 elections. Uh, leader Cantor is married to Diana who he met on a blind date and they are the proud parents of three children and he represents the Richmond, Virginia area. And does so quite well. So please join me in welcoming Leader Eric Cantor.
2: Good evening. Uh, Trey, thank you for that nice warm welcome. Uh, I'm delighted to be back uh, here at the Kennedy School. Now, we must all regularly take the opportunity to reflect. Uh, on our purpose and our plan to achieve our goals. We must question where we are, where we're going, and how we plan to get there. And in Washington, this is an imperative. Going into this new Congress, I examined what we could do in service to our nation in the political and economic environment in which we live. And at the root of what I aim to accomplish through the privilege of serving in Congress, is not just to balance budgets and to instill accountability in government, but it is to try and make a difference in the way life works for the American people. I am delighted to be back here at Harvard and to share some of my thoughts towards this end. When I was here a little over two years ago, I spoke about this institution being the crucible for innovation and that in America we have developed an expertise in innovation and in taking that innovation and those ideas to market. My message then was with innovation comes jobs, economic growth and opportunity. Moreover, public policy should aim to create the conditions for more Americans to enjoy the fruits of this innovation. That mission hasn't changed. However, over the last few years, too many Americans have become disaffected. They feel left out due to a lack of education, skills, resources, or time. Millions of Americans need relief, and they need some help in order to gain the safety and security that comes from income mobility. Now, in many instances, government policy can address these problems, but it's not always about spending money. America's best asset is its people, and our government in Washington should start believing in them. Policy prescriptions should be geared toward empowering people, especially the disaffected. The people of America accomplish more, and they accomplish most when they're educated. In an 1822 letter, Thomas Jefferson wrote, I look to the diffusion of light and education as the resource to be relied on for ameliorating the condition, promoting the virtue, and advancing the happiness of man. Too many millions of Americans do not have access to a quality education. And this has got to change. Last week, I visited a school uh, in Orleans Parish, Louisiana, hoping to identify ways to improve education opportunities for the children who are born into a life cycle of poverty and dependency. While there, I met a young mother named Essence Jackson, Last year, her daughter, Milani, attended kindergarten at a public school in the city of New Orleans. Midway through the year, Milani's teacher pulled Essence aside and said, Look, Milani is too bright to be held back. She's too bright to be kept in this school. You've got to avail her of a better opportunity and she prodded and cajoled and convinced Essence to apply Milani for the Louisiana Scholarship Program. That program, the teacher said, would ensure that Milani would have a way out of this failing school and an opportunity to find another school that could actually give her an avenue for advancement and a route towards a quality education. Milani this year attends first grade at Our Lady of Prompt Succor Elementary School and is a participant in the Louisiana scholarship program. Although there's much controversy surrounding the scholarship program, Essence is a believer. She told me she'd do anything she could to make sure that Milani could stay at that school. It makes that much of a difference caring teachers, nurturing, motivated administrators, and above all, a safe environment for Milani to learn. In essence, is praying that the Louisiana Supreme Court throws out the case challenging the Louisiana scholarship program. You know, throughout the country there are other models in place which help kids just like Milani. And the job for us in Congress is to determine their applicability at the federal level. San Francisco public schools adopted a funding mechanism according to what's termed a weighted student formula. And under this policy, the more students the school attracts, the more money that school, its administrators, and its teachers receive. Low-income students are weighted heavier in the funding formula as are children with disabilities and those learning English as a second language. So there's incentives for schools to seek the more vulnerable population and reasons for schools to differentiate themselves and excel. Imagine if we were to try and move in that direction with federal funding. Allow the money we currently spend to actually follow the individual children. Allow the money to actually make a difference. Students, including those without a lot of money or those with special needs, would be able to access the best available school, not just the failing school that they're assigned to. As was the case for Essence and her daughter, Milani, options ought to include not just public schools or private schools, but also charter schools. A competitive environment where the schools compete for the children rather than the other way around could give every child from the inner city of Boston or New York to Los Angeles an equal chance at a greater destiny. And one of my priorities as Congress will be to move heaven and earth to fix our education system for the most vulnerable. Doing so will give America the best chance to protecting tomorrow for a generation of smart and capable young people. Now many students and their families are dealing with the tragic challenges presented by grave illness and terminal disease. Not only do they rely on, the affordable system of, on an affordable system of quality care, they also cling to the hope that a miracle will occur and a cure will appear. Last year I had the opportunity to visit Partners Healthcare here in Boston. Harvard, together with scientists and and doctors at Mass General, are building new technologies and treatments and have realized some amazing biomedical breakthroughs. These advancements have resulted in life-saving treatments as well as therapies adding to the quality of life for millions of patients. But there's still work to be done, and there are many patients around this country, if not the world, still struggling, still hoping that their day for a cure will come. Now, one of those patients is a constituent of mine. She is one of the most courageous people I know. Her name is Katie, and she is a 12-year-old girl from Richmond. I've known Katie for many years. Katie was diagnosed with a brain tumor just after her first birthday. This is any parent's worst nightmare. First, for years, she went through different treatments and therapies with little success. And finally, at age seven, she and her parents headed to St. Jude Children's Hospital in Memphis. She had a positive radiation treatment and is still doing well today. Prayers for Katie's recovery help, but we've also got to pray that scientists and researchers find cures to these diseases so that our parents and grandparents don't leave us too soon or that children like Katie are not robbed of a healthy life. To realize the dream of faster cures, we've got to place a priority on federal investment in medical research. There should be no greater priority than curing disease. But the fiscal stress at the federal level demands we make smart choices the government spends hundreds of millions of dollars on research that is less immediate and less critical than finding a cure for patients like Katie. Going forward, I believe that every federal research dollar should be measured against its capacity to help our families and help patients like Katie. But to ensure America's continued leadership and success in research and discovery, first we need more young scientists to dedicate their careers to this endeavor. Among other things, this requires better access to higher education and proper training for more students. For starters, we've got to make college more affordable. In 1980, the average cost of college was $8,000 a year. Today, it's over $20,000. And less than 60% of students who enroll in a four-year program graduate within 6 years making matters worse 35% of student loan borrowers under the age of 30 are more than 90 days delinquent in repaying those loans in 2004 that number was 20% compounding the problem the number of borrowers student borrowers has increased 70% in the last 8 years So there are more students who've recently graduated with more student loans that they have to repay. Now once students decide that college is for them, it's really hard to uncover the information to see what they're actually paying for. I actually had a discussion with Harvard's president today over this very notion, is what kind of duty do colleges and universities have towards prospective applicants and parents who are making this very serious decision On to commit resources and to incur loans. Because to many, it's less clear whether the dollars laid out and the loans incurred will actually pay off. Many recent graduates of colleges around the country remain unemployed. In fact, in October 2011, five months after graduation, the unemployment rate for graduates of that same year was 14%. Now eventually these graduates did find jobs but they often took jobs unrelated to their degree and for which a degree is often unnecessary. According to President Obama's former job council, by 2020 there'll be a million and a half jobs without the college graduates to fill them. While there's a persistent unmet demand of 4 to 500,000 job openings in the healthcare sector alone. Recent reports indicate there are not enough applicants with the skills necessary to fill the jobs in the booming natural gas industry in America. Suppose colleges provided prospective students with reliable information on the unemployment rate and potential earnings by major. What if parents had access to clear and understandable breakdowns between academic studies and amenities? Armed with this knowledge, Students and their families could make better decisions and, frankly, they could make better decisions on how to budget their tuition dollars. Students may actually have a better chance of graduating within four years and getting a job. What about the adults and the adults who are unemployed, the adults who don't have access or resources for college? What can we do because we've got to help them too? Now, Essence Jackson. That single mom in New Orleans, she's currently trying to put herself through college to better her career uh, prospects. But if the court strikes down that scholarship program, Essence told me she'd quit quit school and she'd try and find three part-time jobs to make sure that Milani stayed in that elementary school. But to get a good paying job regardless, Essence needs the skills and training that today's workforce requires. This week in the House of Representatives, we're going to be voting on the Skills Act. This bill streamlines the 35 overlapping job training programs that the federal government has and eliminates unnecessary red tape so that state and local resources go directly to helping people who want a job. In addition, many working parents out there are employed in hourly wage jobs. In fact, in 2011, 53.5 53 and a half million Americans work full-time and were paid hourly, not salaried. One of those people is a police officer in my district. She's a single mom, she likes her job, and she's able to juggle the responsibilities of being a police officer while managing her responsibilities at home. And she told me that the reason she's able to get, get along with all of this is her employer allows her a flex time arrangement. Basically, she can work overtime one week, and instead of getting paid time and a half, she can accept comp time so that perhaps the following week she can take her child to the doctor or she can go to an after-school activity in which her child is participating in. She's able to enjoy this kind of flexibility because she's employed by a local government and not employed in the private sector. Right now, the federal government actually prohibits private employers from offering the same benefit to working parents in the private sector. If we simply choose to give all employees and employers this option and allowing one to trade overtime for hours off, no working parent will have to choose between missing out on a child's first play or forgoing a day's pay. This year... We will bring forward legislation to try and fix this very obvious problem and finally give needed help to millions of working parents. These are just some of the policy areas in which uh, the U.S. House will be pursuing this Congress. And I hope that many of these prescriptions will receive bipartisan support, something that's been a rare commodity of late in Washington. These proposals are part of a larger effort to respond to the millions of Americans who go to bed each night wondering why it has to be so hard that it really doesn't have to be this way. These disaffected Americans just want their life to work again. Helping them will result in restored confidence, leading to more upward mobility for more people. So if in two years I'm invited back to speak at the Kennedy School, My hope is that we've made real progress in creating the conditions for health, happiness, and prosperity for more Americans, something that we all should shoot for.
1: Thank you very much. All right, now is the time for question and answers here in the forum. Uh, As you know, this is our tradition. Uh, We have four microphones, two each on the floor and two on the stairs. Um, we're obviously, we have a lot of people already in line. We're probably not going to get to everybody, but we'll get to as many as we can. The rules of questions, uh, they are brief. They end in a question mark. Uh, and please identify yourself, give us your name and your affiliation, uh, and we'll start right here.
0: Hi, my name is Darsh Ali I'm here with the Student Global AIDS Campaign. Well, everyone that's here with me today please stand?
1: Today we are here to ask you to protect the Global Fund, PEPFAR, and the Ryan White Care Act from cuts in the upcoming negotiations. Last time when you visited the forum, we asked you to to restore AIDS funding. You responded that it was all about trade-offs and that we just didn't have the money. In the two years since we last met, approximately 2 million people have died from AIDS-related causes because they didn't have treatment. Mr. Cantor, do you think that that was a worthwhile trade-off?
2: Well, um, you know, I I had said before that I support uh, the advancement in science so that we can eradicate diseases like AIDS. Um, And as you know, we have right now um, a, a, a mechanism called the sequester that's in place. And unfortunately, that sequester takes a very blunt instrument and says, across the board cuts to all of government, save for Social Security and Medicaid. And that's a problem because what it does is it eliminates or reduces, if you will, good programs in the same way it reduces bad. So I, I support research dollars. I support investment in the kinds of programs that you're talking about. But yes, there are trade offs. And yes, we ought to advocate for those that make sense and those that can help save lives and cure disease. All
1: right, next question up here.
0: Good evening. My name is Auden Lawrence, and I'm a freshman at the college. Um, I'm very grateful for the importance that you place on education. Um, Personally, I myself um, feel I am a product of public education. Um, But instead of valuing uh, getting single students out of failing public schools, how how do you specifically do you believe we can fix failing public schools for all students?
2: Well, my response, Alden, would be this. We have to do it one student at a time. We have tried for the last 70-some years, if not more, to fix failing schools. We haven't gotten too far. And so if you think about Essence Essence Jackson, she wanted to do something to help her child, right? So we have parents out there who are ready, who are desirous of finding just a safe place for their kids to learn. We need to respond to them, because you know what? Why would you want to hold her back? Why would you want to hold her back at all? Why would anybody? And that's why I believe that you've got to hold school systems accountable. Now, I was in New Orleans, and they have created something um, called the... uh, the, There is a state school district that takes over failing schools. And, in fact, the legislature in my own state of Virginia just passed a similar law, which will allow, then the state to move in if the schools are failing, failing to meet those goals that a state legislature uh, establishes for them. That is one step towards trying to say we are not going to allow for failure on the part of our school system. Uh, But we've got to try everything. Because again, as a parent of three kids, all of whom graduated from public schools, I can tell you, parents deserve the ability to send their kids to a quality education. So I don't think the two are inconsistent, but while we're trying to figure out the whole system, let's at least help those who stick their hand up and say, please give me a chance to do so. Thank you
1: very much. Before I call next, um, could you all sit down? There are some folks behind you, uh, who, who's, and I think that uh, we gave you a fair chance to make your point. So if you guys could sit that down, I'd appreciate it. Uh, we'll go up here on the question up here. Uh, Hi,
2: my name is Alex Juergen. I'm a student joint between the Kennedy School and the Business School, Uh, Leader Cantor. Thank you very much for coming. My question is about uh, the oil and gas boom in the country right now, which you mentioned. Obviously it's having tremendous effects on the communities where it is, but do you see a real national effect of this game changer, especially in terms of helping struggling Americans,
1: et cetera, helping with economic growth?
2: Well, you know, I I would say there's a lot of discussion nationally about what this tremendous find of indigenous resources means to us. And certainly it it can mean um, a predictable, reliable, affordable source uh, of energy for some time to come. It will allow for us to maintain, if not build, our competitiveness from a manufacturing standpoint. Uh, It will allow for us Uh, somewhat to become energy secure, at least. Uh, And we know what it's meant to be reliant uh, on foreign oil. Uh, And so I think it's very, very positive. I know that there's a lot of controversy around fossil fuels. But if you look at the mix of the fuels today, fossil fuels is overwhelmingly the majority, overwhelmingly. And yes, we ought to be diverse in our energy supply. We ought to continue to pursue science to see where the alternatives are. But we've got a a real advantage for all Americans in making sure that we maximize this indigenous resource that's been uncovered.
1: Up here in the front. Can I ask everyone to please stand again? As we all know, the federal government is in a deep budget crisis. Syringe exchange programs would cost the government no money right now, could also save thousands of lives by preventing the spread of HIV and hepatitis C, and have been shown to decrease drug use.
3: A clean needle costs 10 cents, while a year of HIV medications costs $10,000, making these programs cost effective in the long run. As you just said in your speech, we should measure each dollar against its ability to help patients and their families. On March 27th, when Congress can revisit this issue, will you lift the appropriations ban on syringe exchange programs?
2: Well, uh, we've already passed a bill in the House to uh, extend uh, the current funding formula in that area. Uh, I I applaud you and your advocacy for your cause. I I do. And I understand the severity um, of the uh, affliction that you're trying to address. And I think all of us have good intentions as far as that's concerned. Uh, but as we stand now, no, I won't. Uh, but I appreciate your being here on that behalf.
3: Lift the band! Lift the band! Lift the band! All right, everybody! Lift the band! Lift the band! Lift the band!
1: Lift the band! We have a lot of people who want to ask a lot of questions, and the longer you chant, you're denying your colleagues' rights to ask those questions. So if you're not going to stop your chant, we're gonna to have to ask all of you to leave who are chanting, and we would be escorted out by the security. If you do not leave. All right, Harvard security, would you please escort these people out of the, out of the forum? We're taking away valuable time from folks who stood in line. Is standing. There's some good seats on the floor now available. <laughs> Go ahead, Matt. Thanks.
3: Thank you. Thank you. you got to love the American democracy here.
2: Absolutely. Uh,
3: my name is Jose, and I'm from Texas, and I'm a student here at the Kennedy School. Uh, first, I want to thank you for publicly. A couple of weeks ago, you, um, you stated publicly that you were supporting the DREAM Act and the DREAMers because you feel these uh, young people need a pathway to citizenship. But you also stated that uh, you don't have a support yet for the rest of the million undocumented immigrants here. And two of your uh, objections were the enforcement and the employment verification. Being the majority leader, do you feel that you'll be able to pass an immigration reform during this session? And if not, what are gonna be the main hiccups?
2: Okay, first of all, as far as the advocates you just left, it wouldn't be Harvard without that, right? (laughs) So, um, uh, but uh, really. um, we, we just, uh, we, we embrace uh, robust debate and, uh, and that's what we're about as a country and really respect this institution to allow for civil debate and differences. Um, as far as immigration is concerned, um, I did, I, I gave a talk at the American Enterprise Institute about a month ago in Washington. And what I said then was we have to balance uh, the, the, the two questions surrounding immigration, One is are we going to be that country of immigrants? I mean, I can tell you, uh, you know, I am the grandson of immigrants. If it were not for their ability to make a decision and to leave Tsarist Russia when they were being imposed upon, and was, <laughs> that's a polite way of saying it, in the anti-Semitic pogroms of Russia, I wouldn't be standing here today. And I, I think our country has a history of that. Now, not everybody is a product of someone having to make a decision and come here at their own will, because there's a lot of people who came here and were forced to come here, so we didn't always get it right. But by and large, we want opportunity for more people than anywhere else. So we balance that with, you know, we are a country that is premised upon the rule of law and the equal application of that law. And part of the ability for us to be that opportunity beacon is... Equal and transparent application of the law. So how do, you, how do you balance that? And how do we err on the side of fairness and compassion for people who, most people who are here illegally want to be here to search for that better life for their kids. So what I said was this. There's a lot of groups right now in the Capitol, both in the House and the Senate, bipartisan, trying to figure out a way forward. And we, I think, have a, you know, a limited amount of time that we can get this done because politics can tend to take over. And there's some, frankly, who may not want resolution because of the political force of the issue. I wouldn't count that among my, myself in that crowd. But what I can tell you is if there is a place to start, it should be the kids. You know, the kids who either were too young to know and were brought here, or were brought here due to no decision or fault of their own, and are now here illegally, and know no other place than America's home, we should give them a path to citizenship. You know, I mean, how can we not? Now. In, in the broader issues that you, you touched on, yes, we've got to get straight in the enforcement end, the border security end, we've got to get straight as far as the employment demand for, for illegal workers. you know. And, and we need to come up with a way to update our antiquated visa laws, the worker permits for those who don't even come here in search of citizenship, but just want a job. You know, we also have the issue of here, like in, in Harvard. I mean, I sh- and I, I'm stepping out on this, but I, I believe that the participation in a lot of PhD programs in the quantitative areas are heavily uh, populated by foreign nationals. We want them to stay here. We want to. And in the House, we passed the bill which says, hey, staple a green card to the diploma because the best and the brightest should be attracted to America. And we don't want them to go home. We want them here helping to innovate, helping to grow our economy, create more opportunity for everybody. So you ask me, are we going to do it? Well, I say if, if we're unable to get a comprehensive bill done first, at least we can start with the kids and then go from there. But I'm hopeful we can resolve this. So thank you.
1: Up here in the, the box. Hi.
0: Hi, uh, my name is John. I'm a junior at the college from Turkey. I just wanted to thank you for coming here because problems can't be solved without dialogue, and dialogue can't happen without having both, or actually, all parties at the table. Yeah, um, I have a question about the fiscal cliff deal. Um, I was wondering if you could explain a little bit uh, the difference between you and House Speaker Boehner because you voted no and he voted yes on the eventual deal and uh, does this signify uh, a huge difference, small difference and, and how would that difference impact uh, future budget deals?
2: Um, I, you know, John Boehner and I have a very open communicative relationship. Both of us knew exactly where each other were on that particular vote. The reason I can tell you I voted against the deal was Um, that there was $650 billion of increased uh, tax revenues, higher taxes, over the next uh, 10 years uh, without any corresponding reductions in spending. And um, that's why I did it, and I believe it makes it uh, more difficult now uh, with the President's insistence that we continue to seek more revenue and higher taxes while that time indicated that all they were after was higher taxes and I just don't believe that taking more people's money right now without fixing the problem is what we need to do. We, there, there is no question there is g- agreement that the drivers of the deficit disproportionately are health care entitlements and the unfunded liabilities connected with those programs. We got to do something about it or you're never going to get a handle on this debt. So, again, that's why I did what I did. I'm hopeful that we can get um, a better uh, deal going forward, and we're going to have to see some reductions in spending.
0: Thank you.
3: Yes. Hi, my Hi. name is Ben Bolger. I'm an alumnus of Harvard, and I did my doctoral research in uh, real estate development here. Before that, I did a master's at Columbia in real estate development, and I know you also did your graduate degree uh, at Columbia in real estate development. And so what I want to ask you is I know that home ownership is really a key part of the American dream. What are your thoughts for the return of real estate ownership and the future of the real estate industry, given the economic situation that we're in today?
2: Well, I I haven't seen any of the studies you're probably working on here at Harvard, but I do know just anecdotally from around the country, certainly where I'm from, the housing market seems to be demonstrating some real green shoots. Uh, I think it's too early to say it's back, uh, but I do think that demand is up, supply uh, for new homes, new lots is, is very low in some markets. So I would think that we should be bullish on um, home ownership. Uh, obviously rates are very, very low still. I think that all seems positive for home ownership. There are some bigger questions that revolve uh, around home ownership that may or may not be resolved this Congress. One of them is the future of the government-sponsored entities, the GSEs, Fannie, Freddie, FHA, and what we do with those. Because really what's going on and the reason why rates are so low, part of the reason at least right now, is because government, you, the taxpayers, are subsidizing people's interest rates, subsidizing indirectly your own if you're a mortgage, if you're a mortgagor. So, um... That's one question, and how we can shift towards um, offlaying some of that risk and liability to the private sector uh, and uh, still maintain a commitment to affordable housing. That's what's going on right now in a big way uh, in the Financial Services Committee. Our our chairman, Jeb Hensling from Dallas, is very, very focused on this. Uh, On the other issue is the deductibility of mortgage interest expense. Uh, and what happens with that in tax reform? Um, and, and both sides say they want tax reform. Uh, one of the big drivers or tax expenditures uh, in the system right now is the ability to deduct your mortgage interest. If you take that away, you're really taking away a lot of money from people every month. So again, this is um, you know, still floating out there that may also provide some... Uh, jerkiness to the housing recovery.
0: Thank you. My name is Elsa. I'm a joint degree student at the Kennedy School and the Business School. Um, first of all, we have very different worldviews about what's best for the country, but I do really respect you for um, your devotion to the cause that you believe in and the fact that you're honoring your commitment to democracy by coming here today. Uh, so thank you for that. You. And you know, in a democracy, we are committed to speaking up but also listening. And you know, some of us came here to speak up and a lot of us here are actually here to listen. So I want to listen to, we want to listen to two things um, which I want to ask you. Um, there are people who lament about the lack of civility in politics today. And I want to ask you, what is your biggest regret since you become leader? And also what is the biggest misconception that we have about you as a leader?
2: <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah. Um, I, obviously, the biggest regret is we've been unable to resolve some of the um, issues that s- both sides can define with a lot of granularity. I mean, we, we know what's going on here. I mean, there isn't a lot of difference in identifying the problem. So that's probably the biggest regret, and we're still at it. Uh, misperceptions, oh, my Lord, I don't even know where to start. Um, but all I can tell you... Example. What was that? You can
0: pick a specific example.
2: <laughs> oh, I don't know. Let's just suffice it to say is that I really am like a, a a normal person. I've got a wife for 23 years. I've got three kids, uh, some of whom are your age. Two in school, one out of school. So uh, I I just feel that it's uh, often often the um, portrayals of those in elected office. Um, really are not accurate because for whatever reason, I think there is either a predisposed notion that a columnist or reporter has towards someone in a predisposed view of the world uh, and or um, an imperative uh, to sell news. And that's just part of our system. So you develop some thick skin with all that. So thank you.
1: Back up here in front.
3: Congressman Canton, my name is Tony Conti. I'm a private citizen unconnected with Harvard. Mm-hmm. Um, Welcome. <laughs> thank you. Um, I know that the politically correct position to, to be in is to say that you're in favor of bipartisanship. However, we all know that that's not how Washington or any democratic uh, process works. You have to create a majority by convincing the public of the, the rectitude of the, the rightness of your position. And I'm disturbed as a Republican The fact that uh, we have a a U.S. Senate that hasn't passed a budget in four years, we have a president who attacks Republicans in the harshest and even demagogic uh, terms, and yet I don't see my party responding, fighting fire with fire. Uh, can you tell me why? Are we, are we afraid That's of the media? That's an interesting
2: media? juxtaposition. Yeah, I mean,
3: uh. Are we afraid of the media, the, the, the establishment liberal media that has an obvious div, double standard when it comes to uh, 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 you know Republicans and Democrats? Uh, tell me why we don't have a, a more vigorous debate uh, exposing our position and the demagoguery of the other side. <laughs>
2: well, uh, come... <laughs> I think come come down there one day and see for yourself. There's a pretty vigorous, robust debate every day, uh, and um, you know a lot of it has to do th- through the prism which the news is delivered. I certainly believe that. Um, I, listen, I don't think. I mean, I think you're right in one sense that um, there is a need for us, um, depend either side, to go and convince the middle that you're right, because most people are not so. Uh, partisan or ideological. Most people, I mean, just again, think of Essence Jackson. You know, think of that family at home where I live where they've got a a child that's suffering with cancer. They don't think about partisan divide. All they want to do is either get a job, they want their kids to have a better school, or in the case of Katie's parents, they want her well, right? So I don't necessarily believe that um, the demagoguery or the fire with fire is a way to go and convince um, the independence, if you will, that, that there's a better way. And I believe it is, politics comes down to ideas. Uh, I think that what you're seeing is a clash of ideas. And this president's very frustrated that he can't get um, a, um, a bill through, for instance, like he got Obamacare through or Dodd-Frank through. And that's because the US House is there. And the U.S. House and the members, the majority there has, um, the majority has a very different view of health care, a very different view of how we should um, control the excesses of those in the financial services industry. Uh, and you know, if you don't have tolerance for differences, this is what happens. It gets incendiary. I'm a believer that we need to have tolerance for differences and then be able to set those aside, the differences, and find where we can come together. I really do. So again, I, I hear your frustration. I don't think if you went down there for a while, you'd, you'd, you'd continue to think there wasn't a robust debate. So. Well,
1: thank you. Up here in that box.
2: Hi,
0: my name is Amalia Burson, and I'm a freshman at the college. Thank you for being here. And as a member of the forum committee, I'd like to ask you a question on behalf of the Twitter community. Uh, how likely are House Republicans to support capping tax expenditures as part of deficit reduction?
2: I think um, at this point, capping uh, tax expenditures has to be matched with a reduction in tax rates uh, because it goes back to the statement uh, in response to one of the questions about the fiscal cliff deal. What happened was taxes went up. Where did the money go? It went straight into the Treasury without any progress made on reducing uh, the deficit. Uh, and now uh, we're, we are still at, high, now we're at higher tax rates, while we've got a real challenge in, in the corporate realm, where we are the most disadvantaged country as far as our tax rates are concerned and system in the industrialized world. How can we assume that we're going to be competitive in attracting business and capital if that stays the case? Uh, so I would just say to you, uh, and on the, on the personal side, same goes. We can't just close those tax expenditures and then not give it back to the people that earn it uh, because you're going to go in and exacerbate the problem you're trying to fix, which is a sluggish economy.
1: Leader Cantor, thank you very much for speaking with us today. My name is Jonathan McMaster. I am here at the Kennedy School, a second-year student. I am currently in a simulation in Professor David King's class on Congress. And from the start of the simulation, there's been a very sharp partisan divide. Uh, There's also been infighting within uh, my side, which happens to be the uh, Democrats, even though I'm sitting in the Republican section right now. and so, my question, my question for you uh, is, is there any hope for Congress in reducing partisanship, and is there any hope for uh, our simulation? <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, look, you know, the pre- you know, interestingly, the President has embarked on, um, you know, what the media claims is a charm offensive. Um, I think it is overdue that he does that, because I'll, I'll go back to when the stimulus debate occurred when the President was just elected. He was a historic, obviously, president, still is. He had enjoyed 70% approval rating at the time of that stimulus vote. He didn't get one of our votes. I believe that he could have if he'd just taken the time to develop relationships. You know, I've always publicly talked about the relationship I have with the vice president. I have that relationship because, frankly, I worked with him for seven weeks after the speaker asked me to do so, and the president asked the vice president to hold those talks. It's about getting to know one another. It's about developing a knowledge of how far you can go and what the sensitivities are politically and personally. So I, I, I hope, I, I really do, I, I think that every time we revert to campaign mode, it's very difficult to get anything done on the policy side. So, <laughs> there, there's hope. Uh, 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 thank you. Uh, it's wonderful to hear from you. My name
3: is Sita Gofard, and I'm a uh, sophomore at the college. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we actually, on this very same podium, we heard from David Keene, the NRA president, who told us sort of his main message was uh, our side is essentially not going down without a fight. And that kind of prompts me to ask you the question, um, A, can you elaborate your opinions on sort of gun policy and your thoughts on Obama, uh, President Obama's proposed measures to, uh, on that issue? And secondly, how do you plan to bring together uh, both sides of Congress on this you know, very polarizing issue?
2: Well, I start um, any discussion like this just recalling my experience um, after the Virginia Tech shootings. And I had several constituents who lost kids, uh, others whose kids were uh, injured in that horrific uh, incident. And what our state legislature did at the time is they moved to address uh, the one thing that is common in all of these shootings, and that is mental illness. And um, there was a big study that went on at the legislature and elsewhere on the outside to buttress that. And the end result was to force um, Virginia to upload uh, information on mental health and to try and get around a lot of the issues that block that information and allow that to go into the national database and the background checks. Um, I think we've got to start there because I don't I've met with the families um, in Newtown, Connecticut. It's no fun, it is tragic. You don't go out of there without having been influenced and impacted and it's what a horrific tragedy. And so we've gotta help, we've gotta do something. No one on either side of the aisle, regardless of your position with the NRA, um, nobody wants to sit there and not help. Nobody Nobody wants to just sit and say we can't do anything But we've got to make sure we're doing what we can to actually make a difference. Uh, And, you know, there's a bill working its way through the Senate um, that has to do with straw man purchases. We'll see where that goes. In the House, we are embarking upon a lot of the issues I talked about with the mental health piece because I do think that that is a common thread in every bit of those shootings.
3: Hi, my name is Jacob Morello, and I'm a sophomore here at the college, and um, as someone who identifies as right of center, I'm curious to hear your thoughts
2: on the future of the Republican Party over the next few years. I know that there are a lot of Americans who
3: identify with the party in its economics conservatism, but maybe, you know, identify less with some of the other tenets. So how do you see, how do you think that the party should um, reach out to these voters, and what do you think will happen over the next few years going into 2014, 2016?
2: You know, our, our party really is a party that has a lot of appeal to a lot of different kind of people. And I believe our party is the party of opportunity of individual empowerment. I mean, you heard that come through, whether it was empowering parents like Essence Jackson, whether it was empowering working parents who have trouble juggling the day to give them the ability to manage their affairs. I mean, you take health care, our position on health care, is it about p- empowering patients and not having either the government, or some employer, or insurance company dictate the terms of healthcare. It is a a party of empowerment opportunity. We also have been the party um, of entrepreneurialism, right? and that's something that, frankly, a lot of Americans don't ever get to, if you will, because they're too busy managing their households, and maybe they're not interested in starting a business that they just want to take care of their kids, they want to pay the mortgage, save for college, and and save for retirement and have a good life that this country affords them. I think that our party won't and can't veer from that core. Uh, I do think we need to remember that um, there is um, a a sense that our party uh, needs to do a better job uh, at getting to know different constituencies. And I am much about trying to force that to happen. Um, you know, it's, it's whether, again, it's, it's federal uh, commitment to research and discovery. That is our party. You know, we believe in empowering folks because from that innovation, as I said before, comes a lot of good, whether it's curing disease or creating jobs opportunity. Look at the ecosystem in Cambridge, Massachusetts, for God's sakes. It's because of a commitment to do better and to invest and to empower people. So I, I think our party does need um, you know, to, to maintain its prominence on that issue, uh, at the same time try and do some real soul-searching as far as how we can connect uh, with a, a, an increasingly diverse country.
1: We've got time for one, maybe two more questions, so uh, if the questioners could try to keep them brief. We'll
2: sure. here
3: the uh, Leader Kanner, thank you for being here. I'm Alex from the Kennedy School. Um, my question is about election modernization. Uh, recently, Congresswoman
1: Miller seemed to imply that uh, there wasn't much of a role for Congress to play in election modernization legislation. And I'm wondering if uh, you think that uh, Congress has a role to play specifically on the issues, uh, interrelated issues of provisional ballots and long lines of the polls. And what was And what? Provisional balance? And,
3: what? and long lines of the polls, whether Congress has a role to
1: play in addressing those issues.
2: Well, you know, elections are the privileges of the state, uh, and so we have to work in the federal system that we've got. It seems to work okay, although those lines are not acceptable. Uh, and I do think that there's a way for us to try and get to the root of it, see what's wrong, uh, see what can be done. But remember, those privileges of the state is, is, is to... Uh, provide for uh, free and fair elections at the state level and not Washington stepping in and doing it. Um, you know, you have obviously another very critical election issue coming up, and that is the Voting Rights Act and the Supreme Court. Um, I support the Voting Rights Act. We'll see what the court does with it.
1: Thank you.
0: Hi, my name is Eli Weinstein. I'm a freshman at the college and I'm studying chemistry and physics. You me- mentioned recently, you mentioned in this talk that uh, you want
3: in- supported increased funding for applied research and for um, medicine
2: in particular. Could you talk a little bit about what you envision the role of a place like Harvard, more focused on fundamental research? and what you see um, research dollars going to, um, the future of the NSF and NASA in particular. Could I ask you a question back before I answer that question? Tell me your definition of applied research and fundamental research. I would imagine applied would be something you can come to market within five years. Fundamental would be within 10 or 15 years and you are not sure how. My terminology is basic research. And then what you're talking about is translational activity and research. I believe that the proper role of the federal government in research terms is to bear the risk uh, that the private sector is unwilling to bear and basic science, and then allow for that and those findings and that information to then be used translating into cures, therapies, goods, services, what have you. Uh, again, that's what has allowed our country to lead. Uh, the the uh, tech arena as well as the biomedical arena are the, some of the real drivers of our economy right now. So not only is it imperative for us from a quality of life standpoint in curing disease, it's also a huge economic generator for us. And if we're looking for ways to continue America's prominence in the world economically, I don't think there's any better. Thank you. Thank you all very, very much.